This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The next federal election might be another two years away, but from here until then, we'll be hearing a lot about the federal government's plans to rein in superannuation tax concessions for those with balances of more than $3 million. It'll affect 80,000 people. Their earnings will be taxed at 30%, up from 15% from July 2025, but only if the Albanese government is re-elected. So could Labor have other tax concessions like exemptions from capital gains tax on the family home in its sights? From Canberra, here's political reporter Nicole Hegarty. The superannuation sector knew change was coming, but the reaction has been mixed. Peter Burgess is the chief executive of the Self-Managed Superfund Association, which represents some of the people who have to pay more tax. We don't support caps on high balances, but if we have to have one, uh, then what we've seen is a preferred approach. Greg Combay is the chair of Industry Super Australia. The government's taken a modest step towards addressing that inequity in the system. But, you know, I think in the years ahead, there's more that could be done. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is leaving that door open. There will be no changes this term. Even this change is pointing towards 2025. The shadow treasurer Angus Taylor says the planned tax changes, which will raise some $2 billion a year, are a broken promise. This was an unambiguous commitment from the Prime Minister. He said he wouldn't raise taxes on Australian super. The changes were released alongside an annual tax exemption and insight statement from Treasury, showing how much revenue is foregone, not only from super. $71 $71 billion from various capital gains tax exemptions and $3.5 billion for negative gearing. Professor Miranda Stewart is a fellow at the ANU's Tax Institute. So for investment gains on shares or real estate, people get a 50% discount for, for capital gain. That is worth about $23 billion. And so it's possible that the government could look at who benefits from that uh, discount, which is basically the top 10% by taxable income, and wind that back. While the Treasurer insists the data isn't a statement of intent, Professor Stewart says it helps make the case for broader reform. The top 10% by taxable income get it's more than a third of the benefit of those deductions and the top 20% over half the benefit. The opposition is set to oppose the government's bid to legislate the changes, but is there a political appetite to discuss reining in other tax concessions? Zali Stegel is the member for Warringah in Sydney, one of the country's most affluent electorates. I certainly support that we review our tax system, but I find this kind of tweaking and this kind of class war of just picking on one group. I'm also getting plenty of emails from constituents who are really quite sort of concerned that this changes their thinking around their strategy of investing for their retirement. The government is adamant the super changes are modest. And speaking on the 7.30 program, Treasurer Jim Chalmers has brushed off questions that other tax concessions, like capital gains exemptions, are in Labor's sights. We're not proposing to act on that. We're proposing to act on superannuation for all of the uh, reasons that I've outlined. As for whether the government's superannuation decision is a broken promise... Uh, Sometimes making the right decision does come uh, with an element of political risk and sometimes it comes with a political cost. 
The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, ending Nicole Hegarty's report. Both the Treasurer and the Prime Minister kept repeating yesterday that the change won't affect 99.5% of people with super. The opposition is running hard on it being a broken promise. On the streets of Perth, the proposed change is a major talking point, as Isabel Masali discovered. In Perth's London Court Arcade, Viv and her two sisters are enjoying some retail therapy. We don't see each other all that often, so it's... um it's hot, but we've been managed to enjoy ourselves so far. And doing a bit of window shopping at the jewellers? Yeah, <laughs> it's only window shopping. <laughs> Maybe I'll spend some super. <laughs> As a retiree, Viv has been pretty concerned by reports about superannuation changes. And now the government's announced it wants to double the tax rate paid by Australians with superannuation account balances worth more than $3 million, from 15 to 30%. And I'm thinking, I read all about what they're saying in the paper and I keep thinking it's not going to affect me, but I can't be sure about that because I don't have anywhere near that $3 million or whatever it is in in super. Um, But I sort of feel that super should be left alone. I just don't think it should be touched at all. Now, these changes don't come into effect until after the next election. Would this change how you vote? Probably not, because I'm quite happy with the status quo at the moment. So um, we'll see. We'll see what develops from it, yeah, and see if it's going to be more far-reaching and digging into my little nest egg that's there for me to live the rest of my life, however long that might be. But other shoppers have a different take, whether they're approaching retirement or just starting their careers. I think if you've got $3 million in super, you're bloody lucky. I don't think it should be taxed that high, perhaps 25%, maybe. Not many people I know have got that much in super, including myself. So I feel like they probably have had a lot of things in life handed to them like pretty easily, just from my view. So I think a little bit more money coming out of their money isn't that bad. (laughs) This man has been living in Hong Kong lately, but plans to return to Australia for his retirement. I don't believe in taxing super, whether you have one dollar or three million or plus. Are you concerned that the government will start looking at other types of changes like capital gains, negative gearing, those sorts of things? Yeah, very much. I, I, I think people pay tax when they earn their money and then they put it into savings or they put it into super or they put it into an investment. Uh, It just doesn't make sense they get taxed again on something they've already paid tax on. Perth shopper Michael ending that report by Isabel Masali. Seriously ill or injured patients are swamping public hospital emergency departments in New South Wales, according to new data. With the state election under a month away, doctors want politicians to act, as Catherine Gregory reports. Emergency doctors in New South Wales have never seen public hospitals in such a state. Our emergency departments across New South Wales remain under relentless pressure. Dr Claire Skinner is the president of the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. In its latest report, the Bureau of Health Information says emergency departments are seeing a growing proportion of more urgent patients, those who are triage categories 1 and 2. From October to December last year, there were almost 120,000 of these patients, the highest numbers since 2010. Well, if you look further at the data, you'll see that 
one in 10 patients who come are spending a longer time in the emergency department than we know is acceptable in terms of patient safety. And we also see that three-tenths of the patients who come to emergency are leaving before they receive any treatment at all or up before they complete their treatment. So I'm really worried about their health outcomes. The data also shows that 66% of patients received treatment on time across the state. But in Western Sydney, that was only just above 40%. It was a slight improvement compared to earlier in the year, but a decline when compared to the same period in 2021 and before the pandemic in 2019. And demand for ambulances was at a record high last year, 346,000 cases, according to Dr Diane Watson from the Bureau. The paramedics were responding to more patients with life-threatening conditions than before the pandemic, and patients were waiting longer for ambulances to arrive. But again, response times for ambulance services uh, did improve from earlier in 2022. And there's a continued backlog in elective surgeries. At the end of last year, there were 99,000 people on the waiting list and 17,000 of them were waiting longer than recommended. Dr Michelle Atkinson is the chair of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons New South Wales Committee. At the moment, it's because we have a shortage of staff, so early career medical officers, uh, nursing staff and administrative staff and allied health-like physios, and it's a worldwide problem. Emergency Dr Claire Skinner says the state government needs to take more responsibility. As we head into the New South Wales election, I'd ask the community to hold their local members of parliament accountable for the state of the healthcare system. It would be really good to hear our politicians campaigning in this election real things they intend to do to fix our broken healthcare system. The New South Wales Opposition's health spokesperson, Ryan Park, says this data shows an underinvestment in the state's hospitals and staff under the current Liberal government. While the New South Wales Health Department says that the timeliness of emergency care did improve in the last quarter and that the state outperforms all others on this indicator. It also says the government's investing a record $33 billion in health and has announced the largest workforce boost in history. Catherine Gregory reporting. A senior Tasmanian government MP is at the centre of fresh questions about a perceived conflict of interest. He and his family are involved with a community project to rebuild a hall in the small northern Tasmanian town of Bracknell. $1 million in taxpayer money has been awarded to the project after it won grants following recent state and federal elections. Alexandra Humphreys reports. In the northern Tasmanian town of Bracknell, home to just under 500 people, the football oval is at the heart. And since 2014, it's benefited from injections of taxpayer money thanks to commitments made during state election campaigns. Next door, construction's underway on the town's new hall. That too has been a big beneficiary from the public purse. Bracknell is home to senior Tasmanian Liberal MP Mark Shelton. He and three of his family members sit on the Halls Committee. There are so many questions. That's Tasmanian Greens leader Cassie O'Connor. She says new documents from the local council obtained under right to information laws show that Mr Shelton met with the local council and formally received their request for state government assistance just weeks before the whole project was awarded $400,000 in state funding. 
That, she says, raises questions about a perceived conflict of interest. There's no suggestion the project wasn't eligible for the funding and it's not known what action, if any, Mr Shelton subsequently took. But it's access to lobby for funds that others can only dream of. It's really cosy and there's a legitimate question about whether or not Bracknell Hall would have been able to receive or been eligible for a million dollars in public funds if uh, the local member wasn't also a member of the Bracknell Hall Committee. The ABC can also reveal the documents tabled in federal parliament last month show former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's office redirected $600,000 of community development grant money to the same project in 2020 at the request of the council. What we have here is a million dollars in public funding that's gone through no merits-based process being directed to redeveloping Bracknell Hall. The Tasmanian government and Mr Shelton have declined to provide a comment. The government's previously told state parliament that a politician's association with a community group should not preclude that group from seeking funding. At the other end of the state, David Neal is on the Signet Sea Dragons Soccer Committee and he says they've struggled to win grants to support their growing club. Well, over the years we've applied for various grants. Mr Neal says he'd like to be confident his club has equal access to state government grants. I mean, I guess it doesn't come as a surprise. We all hear the stories of inequalities in funding. And we do often seem to get the short end of the stick down here in in our electorate. The former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been approached for comment. We haven't received a response. Alexandra Humphreys. Many Australians made a pandemic-inspired sea or trade change in recent years, moving from the cities to the country or the coast. But a new report shows some are now moving further and further inland is National Regional Affairs reporter Jane Norman. Morgan Williams and his young family packed up their beachfront home in Perth and moved to Western Australia's oldest inland town late last year, swapping views of the Indian Ocean for the red moral eucalypts that line their sprawling new property in York. It's like literally I could stand in front of my door and throw a rock and it could hit the ocean. I'm FIFO, so I had a good income. The missus had a good income. She worked at a university. So we could afford that sort of life. But then we looked at it and went, is this something, are we trying to keep up with the Joneses or are we actually living the life that we want to live? Because we're paying other people to take care of our kids more than we were actually looking after our own kids. So it became very hard to manage. It's a question on the minds of an increasing number of Australians if the latest Regional Movers Index from the Commonwealth Bank and Regional Australia Institute is anything to go by. The Institute's chief economist is Kim Horton. I think where people are going is a a little unusual. We're seeing now population growth in some of our inland towns that really haven't seen much population change for the last five or ten years. They're now seeing moderate levels of population growth, which is a very welcome change for those places. What's the appeal of these places? Opportunity for work and affordability and availability of housing. Net internal migration to York was nearly 240% higher last year than it was the year before, which means there was a big increase in the number of people relocating to the area from other parts of Australia. Also recording big increases, Port Pirie in South Australia and Glen Innes in New South Wales, where David Hunt, his wife and two kids moved to from Brisbane last year. I just think that there's a lot of people that just want to escape the rat race. It was just becoming, I suppose, really, really, really busy with 
a lot of traffic in the city. Um, and also it's harder to build relationships within, in the community in the city. And what about housing? Like how do house prices compare? For us to purchase a property in Redcliffe, you'd be looking at 850000 minimum to over a million dollars just for a, a standard property. If we were looking at at the moment, you'd be looking probably about half a million or so. The data also suggests long-term residents in places that became popular and expensive during the pandemic are on the move. This was the case for Noosa in Queensland and Victoria's Surf Coast, which, according to Kim Horton, are still growing but appear to be losing locals. We're seeing people leaving those regions and moving further inland and that's sort of causing this sort of ripple I think we really hadn't expected to see that quite so clearly in in the data. Back in York Morgan Williams isn't regretting his big move embracing the slower pace of life. I've started every morning grab a coffee and I sit outside doesn't matter if it's cold doesn't matter if it's super hot just sit outside and just watch the day. York resident Morgan Williams ending Jane Norman's report. An incredible act of generosity means a precious collection of books used by British navigator Matthew Flinders while he mapped Australia in the early 1800s has been donated to the National Archives. The existence of the books was unknown until Flinders' descendants put them up for auction last year. James Viver explains how they've wound up here. So these are the books. Wow, so, uh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> in a laboratory at the National Archives in Canberra, three leather-bound books with yellowed pages, cradled on silk beanbags, lie in front of Sydney philanthropist Barbara Mason. You look at it and think, oh my goodness, this was actually written by Matthew Flinders in a book that was actually written by Captain Cook. The books are copies of Captain James Cook's journals, which belong to explorer Matthew Flinders. His handwritten notes are on the maps and in the margins, making these items unique. Barbara Mason purchased this collection at auction last year with the sole purpose of donating it to the archives. I've always believed in, you know, if you're lucky enough to have something, you should try and share it with people and give something back that's meaningful to Everybody. I'm very interested in history, always have been, and I just think it's about who we are, where we came from, what's happening, and it's just just the right thing. Matthew Flinders charted much of Australia's coastline and was the first to produce a full map of the continent. These books were his reference material. Stephen Fox is from the National Archives. So this is really the first time that we've been, you know, the world has actually been able to see this information. Flinders was the reputed to be the first, first person to use the term Australia for the continent. And these items, particularly the three volumes, were taken with Matthew Flinders as he circumnavigated Australia. And they reveal the way that Matthew Flinders attacked his work. He also recorded indigenous words while on Menang Noongar country, which covers Albany in Western Australia. Words for head, beard, dog, son and others, 17 in total. His contacts with First Nations people, there was, you know, they were positive and constructive and you can see that in the documented evidence. The archives will now approach First Nations elders to further research the language. We could not have done it without Barbara's support. I believe it's an incredibly patriotic act. Um, it's selfless. I mean, she's secured these items. She's donated them to a national collection, really for the people of Australia. The books will now be restored and digitised and will eventually go on public display. James Viver reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 50 years ago, psychedelic drugs were successfully used to treat mental illness. 
That's until politicians stepped in and banned them. But soon, Australia will lead the world in legalising the use of drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, which is found in magic mushrooms, to treat patients. Today, a leading researcher on the incredible success of the drugs in trials and how they work. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.